tonight on Arena. The Wheel, EO and Saint-Omer are among the movies up for review and get your jumpers for a new documentary on the Sultans of Ping. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Well, another busy week for film releases tonight. With the help of Ruth Barton and Paul Whittington, we look at five new films. EO, the story of performing donkey who escapes the circus and embarks on an epic journey through Europe. Saint Omer, French language courtroom drama that deals with infanticide and sorcery. A knock at the cabin, supernatural thriller by the director of The Sixth Sense. And You Resemble Me, the story of a young Muslim woman struggling with her identity who becomes a jihadist. All of that to come this evening, but we begin with The Whale, in which Brendan Fraser plays Charlie, who is eating himself to death and realises he doesn't have long left to make peace with his life. Um, we were Ruth, we're following Charlie, uh, played by Brendan Fraser here, during five days in his life. How serious is his situation? What stage is he at? We know right from the beginning that these will be his last five days and that's not giving anything Mm. away because he is being nursed by the woman who turns out to be the sister of, of his of his lover who had who has now passed away so um, she is she's she's played Liz her name is Liz she's played by Hong Chao she's actually very good in the role mm. and she's ticking him off the whole time and she comes in right at the beginning um, he's having a seizure of some sort he's um, also watching porn on TV at the same time mm. uh, she comes in and she starts giving out to him and saying you've got to stop you've got to go to hospital and he refuses refuses to go to hospital. And we become aware um, very soon that he is really fundamentally committing suicide. He's eating himself to death, yeah. literally, and he has no desire to go to hospital or to live. So that, that uh, relationship between nurse and patient is is important here, but also, I think, important is the presence of, uh, is it Ty Simpkins, who's playing the character of Thomas, yeah. kind of Bible thumper, Paul? Yeah, he's one of these door-to-door... <coughs> Uh, uh, you know, born agains that uh, we get here. I had someone called to my door last week, actually. I'm oh, given short shrift. Did they but, get uh, lucky? No. Uh, but so he turns up this young fella and um, Charlie lets him in and one is bemused by why and he listens mm. to all the shtick about, about being saved and all that sort of stuff. But it's very familiar to him because th- the boyfriend that Ruth mentioned was originally part of the effectively the cult that he was in right. and he listens and he listens to him he, his, his, his last days are then invaded by his daughter who is you know a, a, a vengeful harpy really is any way you could, you could describe Ellie played by Sadie Sink who's Has she very, reasons to be vengeful? She, she, she does but there seems to be something more than that something mm. matter with her maybe and she's played by Sadie Sink who is really good actually uh, in it and she starts messing with his head and you know promising things and taking them away and uh, eventually, his ex-wife turns up as well, uh, played by um, Samantha Morton. Samantha, Samantha Morton, Morton. and uh, the, the fact that they they share the best the film's best scene. But it's like a kind of a, it, it's like a sort of passion play. It's supposed to be. You right. know what I mean? It's the man's misery, and can you sympathise? Right, and I suppose, as I said, the the, the principal relationship, or the, certainly the relationship that carries us through it, is between the nurse Liz, played mm. by mm. Ang Chow, and uh, the Brendan Fraser character, uh, the character of Charlie, played by Brendan Fraser. Here's a scene uh, between the two of them. Very uh, Charlie clearly here is is very confused. She saved him. She wasn't trying to hurt him. She was trying to help him. Who are you talking about? He's going home. 
She did that. Charlie. She didn't do it to hurt him. She did it to send him home. Do you feel lightheaded, Charlie? Look at me. She's trying to help him. Who? Ellie. She was trying to help him. She just wanted to send him home. Do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring? And that's uh, Brendan Fraser and Hang Chow in a scene there from The Whale. Um, and I know Ruth, yourself and Paul were in and we were all raving about, you know, the Irish successes in the Oscar nominations. The Whale is, is up there with quite a few yeah, nominations yeah. as well. Brendan Fraser among them. Yeah, it is. And people will, will be probably well familiar with his with why because he wears this fat suit throughout mm. and, and and I became quite distracted by the fat suit because I was fascinated by how much movement he actually had it's and very how convincing. very convincing his face really can and show he consulted with advocacy groups here as well didn't he yeah he does he has and I mean I, I think you know you, you could kind of ask yourself oh should a fat person have played this mm. role you know is this ableist or um but at the same time, he seems to have had a lot of support from from people with, um, you know, eating disorders and, and, and weight issues. So I, I don't think I don't think we hmm. need to worry about that too much. He puts in a fantastic performance. I mean, to be honest, that's one of the few good things, in my opinion, about the film. His performance. His performance, and and I mean, as you say, also Sadie Sink, you know, who's familiar to people from Stranger hmm. Things, as his daughter. Um, and you know that last sequence is he's talking about her and he's but he's a saint in the film because he's defending she's behaved indefensibly and he's saying oh no we have to believe the best of people um, and and you heard the kind of heavy music and yeah, that, just yeah. cueing us cueing us yeah you're not, us. Yeah, uh, you're to, not to, to, to make no. your own if you're not feeling no. sad you should be feeling sad is oh what that yeah would be. you know yeah. cue about man about yeah. to die yeah, yeah. and and um, I mean Brendan Fraser. This is perhaps not the role that you would immediately think of no. him being cast in. This is an action hero. This no. is the, one of the great hunks of cinema in earlier days. Yeah, and who has had, you know, a, 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 you know, a fairly hard time, I think, in some ways. But uh, yeah, and I mean, it, it, you, you wouldn't put him in this and it's being ascribed that dread word mm. comeback. But it, it, he, he is very good. There's no question about that. He manages to act even under that, you know, that suit or whatever it is. Um the, the 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 problems with the film. I don't hate it as much as a lot of other people hate mm. it. But the the problems with the film are, um, it, it it as we said, it doesn't trust us to, to feel and think for ourselves. First of all, um, it doesn't never manage to elevate itself to the level of a tragedy, which is what it's trying to be. And the way it focuses on how he eats, um, I found disturbing. Like you know the sort of the greasy lips and folding a massive slice of pizza into his mouth in ways that defy the laws of physics and all this kind of thing. And just and and wolfing down. It's it's like Aronofsky is trying to push us into being yeah. disgusted by him. Should we feel sorry for him? Should we not, or whatever? And I found all that a bit icky, to be honest. Yeah, and I suppose Darren Aronofsky is no no stranger really to films that have issues in and around body, body, horror, body image yeah. and all and, of that. And also yeah. queerness. I mean, I mean, you know, the film very very clearly does not want us to be disgusted by a gay man you know who has body issues yet you know if you go right back to black swan he was doing exactly the same yes. thing in black swan and he he somehow rubs up together queerness and body issues and i don't think he's thought it through i don't think it's an intentional provocation i think it's a carelessness yeah uh, and that's what i felt about this film too so how how does that um translate in terms of stars from you ruth i give it three because i, I you know that's mostly for brendan fraser and actually for sadie sink's performances but i i, I didn't i didn't like it yeah you weren't you weren't <laughs> that enamored of it and it has 
its origins on on the stage. stage does it does it manage to shed those origins well, sufficiently I, Paul no it doesn't, but it, it, it doesn't but I think he he was probably deliberately doing that I wouldn't I don't think it's accidentally stage bound I yeah. would give it three stars because of the acting like Ruth and particularly that scene Samantha Morton blows the whole thing away in this one scene five minutes with this kind of soliloquy and she's just brilliant but she always does that at the moment oh, she's fantastic mm. yeah because there wasn't, wasn't there a disappointment over her not being nominated for the Oscar for what was the film she, she said, said yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, she was terrific in that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just too, too too small. The role was probably right, to get so for a nomination. Not, not supporting enough for no, role. No, just no. okay. Well, she's getting a, a nod from you two certainly yeah. tonight in terms of performance here. Let us move on then to film number two, which we have to be impartial about, even though it's up against on Colleen Kuhn in yeah. the Oscars. This is E. O. The story of a donkey. Yeah. Uh, and, and it has its origins in, I suppose, what we might, in using my fingers for inverted commas here, Paul, <laughs> classic cinema, doesn't it? It does. It's um, it, it's really, in one sense, a tribute to Oazar Balthazar, which you probably teach in your course or have done, uh, which is... I have indeed, yeah. Which, and, which, and I love it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a marvellous film from uh, uh, Robert Bresson and it's 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 an incredibly poetic and daring, daring film for its time and it, it essentially used a donkey as a vehicle to show uh, man's humanity and inhumanity yeah. and this in a way d- does the same thing but it's kind of a more psychedelic version of Oazar Balthazar <laughs> and it shows both how much the world has changed since 1966 when the first one was made and how little and how little people change as well. Yeah I suppose uh, the story is how the donkey is treated yeah, the, this the, is what the, we're talking about here mm. essentially Ruth Yeah the donkey the donkey is a circus act the circus first of all it's being boycotted by animal rights protesters and then it goes bankrupt so the donkey is essentially let go And the animal rights protesters <laughs> are almost the baddies in this aren't oh, they, yeah, they because he's got a good situation and then he because yeah. this woman loves him and then she loves him and, and she feeds him carrot muffins yeah. and and the only time the That's film love. really gets it tries to get inside the donkey's <laughs> head is when he has sort of flashbacks to carrot muffins I mean it does have really interesting psychedelic moments it does doesn't yeah. it and then, like there's one bit that's a bit like you know the bit in Father Ted my lovely horse it's almost a bit like that but but but, <laughs> but it, it's sort of beautifully done oh, though. absolutely beautiful because from time to time like it doesn't you know it, it, this isn't a Disney movie and he, the no. donkey goes in this odyssey through um, Poland ending up mm. somehow in Italy. We won't, you know, worry about too much about the actual logistics of any of this. But from time to time, the camera just focuses on his, you know, his dark eye, and you can see reflected in it what's happening to him. And the whole time, he's just this very innocent donkey who has flashbacks to being fed a carrot muffin, and, and people do awful things to him. Um, yeah. Uh, and but as you say, it's but about, also like, kind things, kind well. things too. And then there are some really bizarre interludes. There's this uh, artificial intelligence dog that makes an appearance at one stage, uh, rolling and twisting. Unexplained, and is unexplained, <laughs> just mm. pops in there, and some very trippy music. Yeah, and so Jerzy uh, Skolomowski is the director here. Are we in the in the world of some kind of allegory? I, you know, was it was it Goddard who spoke about the previous film yeah, in terms of allegory? Yeah, well, Goddard said that uh, about Oazar Balthazar, and I, I frequently disagreed with him but he was right about this that it was the entire world in an hour and a half and he was right because it was well it's our human world mm. and uh, it was all about h- h- how we see the other world and what right have we and also just um, a kind of 
you know, a, a, an innocent eye on how we behave. And and this film operates in the same way. And I think it's it's sort of mesmerising. I think it's mm. very oh, successful. There's one yeah. bit, there's loads of bits of marvellous cinematography. There's one bit where the poor old donkey is wandering over a dam and the dam appears to, to reverse itself and flow backwards up into the wall of the dam and then the waters below are sort of resolving themselves in a strange way. And you just stare at it. It's pure cinema. Yeah. There's, there's hardly any dialogue necessarily because EO's not very chatty. <laughs> and uh, when we get the title right, EO. EO, yes. I was saying that my Polish language lessons are going really well. I, I know how to say hee-haw in Polish. It's a good start, strong yeah, start. Yeah. Very, very good yeah. opening line, I, I would have guessed. But it is, it is a, by, uh, by the Necessity. It is a very visual film. Is the donkey anthropomorphized? So yeah, say I'm, that I'm, word I'm, for I'm me, I'm please. With you on not being able to pronounce it. Thank you. Anthropomorphized. Yeah. It's been said in my ears. Give me the give me no, the help. It's it's a donkey. It's a fact. A donkey played by six donkeys. I mean, it, it isn't a. It isn't. A, you didn't have to tell me that. Oh, I'm sorry. No, but I was kind of I was looking at the cross on its back, yeah. and I reckon they painted that cross yeah. in because it's actually now quite unusual. Yeah. Just this for you know footnote mm. to all of this. It's unusual night of donkeys with crosses on their backs. Yeah. That's sort of been bred out. So I reckon they they got the shoe polish in, and each donkey got a cross put on its back the donkey no the donkey is it's it's just it's just a donkey yeah and it has to be because in Balthazar there's the whole thing it's never sentimentalised it's just a donkey and yeah, you know, what Disney. does it think of it all yeah. You know? yeah, yeah but it, it says something to me clearly unless all six donkeys sorry to burst the bubble again yeah. and you Paul <laughs> yeah. uh, went to some kind of donkey acting school it, it, it says a lot about the power of the director, the story, yeah. that we obviously project all these feelings onto the donkey. Yeah, yeah, you, it is. And there's so much imagination in the way he has him wandering, you know, like sort of Odysseus across across the middle of Poland. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's very movingly done. I did think about how it had been done, and especially a scene late on involving some cattle in which the donkey looked mildly distressed to me. But there is a thing at the end uh, which no. very carefully says no, no, because yeah. it is about animals as well. I think he feels quite strongly about it. Sounds that. a bit like Andrea Arnold's cow. You remember that film? Oh from yeah, a while yeah, back? yeah, yeah. It's yeah, very, it's well. very yeah. much the yeah. same thing. Absolutely. You know, you really Absolutely. feel that this animal is an innocent animal, and that people—it's the people who are who are bad. Yeah, and Isabella Hooper makes a, a brief appearance at the end. <laughs> but yeah, and just, can you explain? Just it? No, typical. There's no point. Just typical. Her. She's this. She's this. This mother who's sort of a Franco-Italian mother who's given out to her son who gambles, and she's just. Terrific in it, <laughs> but and deadpan, and she and she isn't outacted by the donkey. So. Yeah. No, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, um, stars for uh, for EO. Do you know, um, as donkey movies go, it's one of the best. I know, but I really, I can't really find fault with it in terms of what it's doing. So I would give it five stars, I think. Uh, five? Yeah. Oh, you're mm. you're right up there. Mm. Mm. So only one of the donkeys isn't getting a star then. Well, of course, you can't give six stars, can no, you? No. Five. What are you saying, Ruth? I gave it four and a half, but I'd, you know, I'd have gone five. I, I loved it. I mean, I, I thought you know, it's, it's it's worthy competition now for us in the best foreign language. Yeah, but we yeah. still don't want... Oh, God, no, I mean, we don't. Right. I mean, it's absolutely it's rubbish, great, but obviously. not that yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the German one to worry about as well. Yeah, yeah. there's a few. Yeah. novel Overblown, well. overblown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, look, like EO, certainly what I saw, but I must say it charmed me. I'm very yeah. charmed. I'll see the rest of it very soon. Let us move on then to Saint-Omer, fictional uh, courtroom drama based on a true story by the French filmmaker Alice Diop. Uh, what is the, the true story here, Ruth? Or what is oh, this it? Is, yeah, this is a really uh, a horror story. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean it's a horror film, yeah. but it's a, it's a terribly, terribly sad story. And the, the real-life story is uh, this um, uh, woman from, uh, immigrant woman from Senegal who comes to France for a variety of reasons. She comes to study. She wants to be a philosopher. Mm. She ends up, um, she doesn't have the finances to study. She ends up uh, in a relationship. It's sort of suggested of convenience with a much older uh, 
Parisian man. She goes to live with him, um, becomes pregnant, doesn't tell her family, doesn't tell anybody, conceals the pregnancy, has the baby on her own. Um, he comes back from being away. He has a wife and child. They all know this. And um, she begins, to, she feels that she's been cursed and she feels her life is deeply unhappy because she's been, cur been cursed. Mm. Um, and so in, in the end, she, um, she, she looks after this child beautifully. Uh, she brings the child, she goes to Saint-Omer, which is hence the name of the film, is the name of this place. She goes to the beach, she breastfeeds the baby, uh, she lays the baby down on the beach and she walks away and the baby is carried away in the tide. And a fisherman finds the baby's body, thinks it might initially might have been a washed-up immigrant, but then re they realise that this is... Yeah. Because they can trace back that the woman was in the hotel. And, and, and the, her argument is that she's innocent because it was the curse that made her do it. Yeah, okay, in so, court, there's a court yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. It, so it, it 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 is a courtroom drama. It to is. what extent are we getting the you know I put it to you, uh, well, etc. That, that kind of classic courtroom drama situation, or is there something more psychological going on here? There is. Well, there's two reasons. I mean, the, the French court, the French legal system works very very differently uh, uh, than than say the, the the British or American models. Well, the American models based on the British model. Um, and you, it's not quite so adversarial. adversarial and, right, and in yeah. fact, you see, you see the French legal system. It's all his Majesty here because the judge, the, a female judge, is very fair-minded, and she wants to, her, her to exp, uh, the, the character to explain what has happened and why she did it. And th th there is an adversarial uh, 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 defence and and um, a, prosecu a prosecuting lawyers as well. But it, it it all operates very well. But you feel that two different conversations are being had and that the Cartesian legal system is inadequate to the task of coping with a different set of beliefs, which are kind of left uh, open-ended. So the film mm. is about, it's, and the, the, the other film we're talking about tonight is about it too, about the immigrant experience in, 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 the, in the French state yeah. and, and the rigidities of that. Yeah, because we should explain, th there are two women in, involved in the story <laughs> here. Yeah. It, it's the trial of uh, Lawrence Coley, who is the woman who left the baby on the beach. That's and then right, there's yeah. another woman, uh, Rama. Rama, Rama, who is a writer. Mm. Yeah, that's also, right. of, also of Senegal. Yeah, they're both of the same, yeah, same Senegalese or, origins. We should also mention that the director, Alice Diop, is a documentary filmmaker mm. and she came across this story but in the end decided that that she would mm. fictionalize it and it's uh, also of west Af african uh, it is yeah, indeed yeah, yeah. and and so rama is she's this very elegant french woman of immigrant origins she is a successful novelist and she's also a college lecturer so she decides to attend the um, the court case essentially because almost as a sort of not quite as a sensationalist onlooker, but somebody who's going to make this story, the, the real-life events, into a story. And she thinks this is, you know, she's got into her head somewhere, or, you know, she imagined this, that this is really the story of Medea. And and so she brings that with her to the court case. But as the um, the woman who's on trial begins to tell her story and is always maintaining her innocence, and when she's told she's lying, she just goes blank because this is the way she sees things. This makes Rama reconsider her own kind of Western enculturation and realise, no, she's, she's got the wrong story here. It's not the story of Medea. This is an African story. Yeah, and she's also pregnant She's also pregnant. Well. She's four so, months so, pregnant. So the, the, the sort of layers of separation between them start to fall and you find out that about Rama's imperfect relationship with her own mother and all this kind of thing and it's it's teased out mm. in this yeah, really so subtle it, way yeah, yeah. And, then, and then the <coughs> and then the woman she you know Lawrence Coley looks the only time she looks at anybody mm. in the room she turns her, around yeah. from and looks mm. at Rama mm. as if you know mm. you know she's looking in the mirror 
So it, it certainly isn't then that there's a last minute twist and the case no, all falls no, apart no, or the case no, is solved yeah, and whatever. It's, it, 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 it's, it's about something else. So that sounds as if it's it, a, it leaves you to draw your own conclusions because and there's always some, a good idea. Always a good idea. And then there's some really, you know, there's some fairly brutal moments in it. There's the woman, the, the college lecturer who should have been her PhD supervisor says, well, I don't know why she was writing about Wittgenstein. I mean, she's not white. Why didn't she choose an African philosopher to write about? Yes, and there are constant hints like that. And mm. you, you hear as well, because it's a film about the power of language as well. And you hear uh, the, 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 the defendant uh, uh, speaks beautiful French and there, it's frequently commented upon, like, why doesn't she sound like she's in Senegal? She, she speaks lovely French. So there's all yeah. these expectations of, mm. of her that are and are not met. Mm. That's your, your, my oh, I, I was, re- I was yeah, well really taken good. with this. I really, really was, and it, I mean, you could go on talking about it. We could sit here all yeah. evening talking yeah. Yeah. about well, it and finding more in it. I'm guessing we're in we're in high star category oh, five, again. Five for me, yeah. Five I, I, on this oh, one. Yeah, and, and for me, yeah, it's an outstanding film. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And actually, it should film. be on the short list for 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 uh, along with on Colleen Kuhn, which of course should be there, but it should be there, and it isn't. And there's two films at least that are poorer than this that are on. Oh, there you go. So yeah. you're disappointed for yes. it in, in that yeah. regard. So yeah. double fives, yeah. uh, two fives then for Santo Omer. Let us move on to film number four, A Knock at the Cabin. <laughs> do I need to I say any more? Table, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was going to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, okay. For, decided yeah, not to. Um, latest offering from M. Night Shyamalan, the director of The Sixth Sense. Are we in a similar world? Uh, what kind of world are we in, Paul? Well, in some senses we are because the the, 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 the apocalyptic theme runs heavy through the work of M. Night Shyamalan. And, uh, in the cabin in the woods. In the cabin in the woods and so it is here. But you know what? He's very good. He's very good at starting films. He's always been really good at starting films. And he starts this one brilliantly. This little girl, um, this eight-year-old girl, uh, she is um, when is her name played by Kristen Quee she is out in uh, outside this log cabin by a mm. lake and uh, among the flowers collecting crickets in a jar uh, when this very large tattooed man approaches and we think oh dear here we go uh, and it's Dave Bautista who is mm. turning into a very decent actor actually and uh, we think this is not going to end well and but he starts talking to her and he's incredibly gentle and he's apologising in advance for what will have to now occur and in fact, this film works in large part because of him, because of the casting of Dave Bautista, this sort of monolith, and the fact that he is the gentlest, uh, not giving anything away, he's the gentlest, sweetest person in the film, with the possible exception of the little girl. All right. Uh, so Dave Bautista's Leonard then arrives with the little girl, and then they go back and knock at the cabin door. Who's there? Well, there, there are her daddies, and she is the child of a, a gay couple, um, two men who have adopted her, we learned, because uh, she's um, Asian. They've adopted her from an orphanage. Ben Aldridge and, and Jonathan Groff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Sorry, um, yeah, Andrew and, and Eric. And Andrew, um, ben, ben Aldridge is the kind of smarter, more in-your-face guy of the two, mm. and he's a, he's, a, he's a lawyer. And Eric is kind of the sweeter of the two. Um, but it doesn't really go into... It does, it's not a film that trades in stereotypes of gay men at all. I mean, you have to say that for it. No, it's they are, pains to avoid Yeah, that, it really is. And they're mm. just... They're a very happy... Uh, they're a very happy family and they've gone holidaying in the woods uh, da-da, don't do it always they, a good idea um, don't go into the basement <laughs> don't, don't holiday in the woods don't holiday in the woods um, because of course you know 
the next thing is uh, Batista uh, mm. Leonard and uh, he brings along his little group of henchmen um, who all have rather bizarre kind of medieval weapons with them. Um, when rushes into the house and, and tells the daddies to lock up, they barricade the doors. But, you know, we know they're going to get Can't in and sure it. enough they do. Home invasion territory, uh-oh, right. because something very nasty is going to happen. Yeah, so they're going to have to do awful things to survive the apocalypse. That's basically where we're at. Well, basically, the, as they expound it, they're very sorry, but they, one of them has to decide to sacrifice themselves to avert the apocalypse. Just don't there overthink it, John. That's yeah, just, that's, you're, that's, but yeah, yeah. well, I understand that. You make that choice. Off you go. Have a good luck with that one. Um, let us let us listen to a clip um, from a knock at the cabin, and here we'll hear the aforementioned daddies, Eric, played by Jonathan Groff. He is he's fighting off Dave Bautista's uh, Bautista's yep. Leonard at this point, yep. and Ben Aldridge playing the part of Andrew bursts in. I believe you were chosen because your family's love for each other is so pure. I know you've been through a lot and people haven't been fair to you. Drop the weapon and move away from Eric or I'll show you I was chosen to put a bullet in your head. Drop it now, Leonard, or I'll kill you. You're dooming us all, Andrew. You're dooming your husband. You're dooming your daughter. I'm done with you! I'm not listening to another goddamn word you say! It's time for the next sacrifice. Are you willing to make a choice? You're crazy. I'm taking my family. And I'm leaving. There we go. Eric played by Jonathan Groff. Uh, ben Aldridge as Andrew, his husband. And then Dave Bautista as Leonard, the nasty man who has broken into their cosy cabin in the woods. But they're also nice to each other, saying, I'm terribly sorry that I'm asking you to do this, Eric. Not at all, Leonard. I understand your difficulty. I mean, there's, there's a kind Apart of... Apart from Rupert Grint's character, who's... who's actually the weakest of the lot, and, and yeah. is, he the, is he the real nasty pasty? Well, no, he's well, he's the, you know he's the guy from Harry Potter. And first of all, he can't he can't actually make the American accent work from at all, and he keeps it. The accent keeps mm. keeps drifting. Supposed to be from Boston as well, which is yeah. yeah. And, he, and and he's the link to he's the link to a queer bashing st- story. In the, I mean, what I thought was quite quite clever about it was that in the, as you say in the initial setup, we don't actually know if this. These are people pretending to be. Um, mm. Here to save us from the world, from the end of the world, or if they are actually people who come, if they're queer bashers, because yeah. um, Andrew thinks that's what's happening, that they are, you know, that right. that's what's going on, and so the film does keep you kind of wondering okay. for a while. So it starts well, uh, mm. it's what you said, Paul. How does it go on after that? And we will be soon be saying M Night Shyamalan, the maker of. The Sixth Sense and A Knock at the Cabin. Is it in that category? No, we might say The Sixth Sense and Old or The Sixth Sense and and The Visit, which were two very good films. But uh, no, it's grand, Sean, is what it is. Because he set himself the task. I talked to him last week, actually. He set himself the task of basically managing to make uh, this, you know, whatever it is, five, six hander Mm. in a room, interesting. And he he cheats with a few flashbacks and he uses the television well, which he always does and appears on television in Chicken Ant. Did you see that? He he appeared on (laughs) Chicken Ant. He's just that Hitchcock. But but, but it it actually actually works out okay and it is sort of in an odd way uh, quite affirming in terms of humanity in oh, ways right. that some other films tonight are not. <laughs> Stars, Paul. Uh, yeah, three, three and a half, actually. Give it three and a half. Three and a half, yeah, three and a half. Yeah, three and a half. Yeah, yeah. I'd go three and a half as yeah. well. Yeah, oh, I right. mean, the ending's a bit disappointing. Like, you're waiting for the great yeah. twist and there isn't one. It's very hard to end it these just things stops, well. Yeah. Really, yeah. Yeah. It starts well, doesn't do so well at yeah. the end. Okay, yeah. let us move on then to uh, You Resemble Me. We spoke to the director, Dean O'Meara, 
the other night on the programme. It tells the true story of Hasna Ait Bulacha. And you might remind us of who she was. Uh, first of all, this real person, Hasna Ait Bulacha. Yes, she was um, the, the woman who was killed in the um, uh, Battle Clan atrocity uh, of 2015. So she was a cousin of the, of the man who organised the Battle mm. Clan um, you know, atrocity in Paris. Um, and, and she the was other blown attacks up on the day. And she was blown up. And she was blown up after and it. Yeah, after yeah, it. And yeah, she was labelled immediately yeah. afterward as afterwards as Europe's first female uh, uh, suicide yeah. bomber. Oh. And, and, and so that's the reputation that she got. And that's as I mean, actually, you heard in your interview, Dina Amer saying that she believed that too initially, and she went with that story um, until. You know, people began to look into it more closely and realised she was actually trying to escape from her husband. Yeah, there was the... the uh, from, viral, sorry, from her cousin. Yeah, from her the, cousin. There was the viral video that had her shouting from the window, I yeah. want to get out, I don't want to be part of this type of... Though, not exactly those words, but words to that mm. effect. But Dina Amir goes in, uh, goes and fictionalises this story. Now, she did speak, to be fair. She spoke to the family yeah. uh, of, of Hasanite yeah. Bulash and, and, and got their stories and then gave us her version of that story yeah. going right back to Hasna's childhood. Yeah, and especially early on, it's very persuasive and it's 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 like, you know, anatomy of, a, you know, what makes mm. someone like that. And uh, I don't know if, you, if, if, you, if you've gone to Paris and you go into Paris, you go through the suburbs and these these massive cité that were built in the middle of nowhere and, you know, uh, there's no way out of them often. And this uh, these two sisters grew up in one of those. Um, their, their mother's from Morocco and... Uh, she is not a good parent whatsoever mm. and she seems very actively indifferent uh, to the two girls who run away constantly. And uh, One's older, one's younger and the other one, they keep saying to each other, I look like you, no, you look like me or you look like me or whatever. And, that you and resemble me And that's where it comes, comes from, again. yeah. And also that when, when Dean Amar went to uh, Hasna's real-life mother, the mother said, you resemble my daughter. Yeah, yeah, you which know. is really, uh, you, uh, Ruth was saying that as well. So the the early parts of these two escaping and and going from their cité, from, from this high-rise mm. place they live, which is not a safe place, and into the middle of the city to beg, it's very powerful. That It's always very powerful when that happens. And they they get taken into social services, not surprisingly, because their situation is yeah. appalling, and the girls get separated, which you feel is a terrible... Uh, yeah, a tragedy for Hasna in particular. And, um, you know, I've, I really felt that that's, you're, therefore your sympathies are very much with this these this young woman. Oh, very, and, very and you're much. carried through yeah. difficult situations and she has in her in her young adulthood as yeah, well. Yeah, because the film go, moves between when they're small, you know, she's age nine, the child who plays is actually fantastic. Um, mm. She's age nine at the beginning of the film, then we go forward into, you know, to, to just shortly before her death. And and the woman, we see effectively how she becomes radicalised in yeah, and around and a search for identity. She's very needy. She's very unhappy. She hasn't had, you know, the family background mm. that would support her in life. And so she, she drifts. She's a drug dealer. She's a prostitute. Yeah. She she tries to enlist um, in the army and they say, you know, are you joking? Yeah. And, and so she's lost in life. And Dina Mears said to me, you know, that, in some ways she, she wanted she, she comes from the same Muslim background yeah. herself and she wanted to not rehabilitate because no rehabilitation was necessary but she wanted to reclaim and retell this person's story does she succeed in doing that Paul? She does especially early on Sean the problems start when uh, the drama collapses into a kind of documentary towards the end which I felt was, was really not right do one thing or do the other thing not to say it wasn't interesting it was very interesting but I wanted it to stay a drama and, yeah. and stay true to itself in that sense and yeah. and for you Ruth did it work yeah, overall on stars? Yeah I mean I'm, I, I thought by far the strongest sequence at the beginning and when you know we, we, we get into her life and you're really with her mm. but I totally agree on, on first of all this sort of technique of putting three actors 
faces onto the one character. Yeah, she does. Uh, yeah. uh, which just yeah. was distracting. Yeah. And then, as yeah. you say, the documentary at the end really lost me. It lost my kind of emotional oh, like attachment. Stars? Um, well, I, I gave it three and a half because I thought it had really good intentions. Yeah. And Paul? Yeah, but, but it's a bit three and I would agree. It just got diluted by some by, okay. by trying to do too much, I think. All right, that's it. You resemble me, which along with uh, E.O., Saint-Omer, A Knock at the Cabin and The Will were our five films up for review this evening. Ruth Barton and Paul Whittington with me in studio. We were all about St Bridget on last night's arena for obvious reasons. Tonight it's the turn of St Dipna, the patron saint of mental health and the subject of an exhibition now at the National Gallery of Ireland. St Dipna, the tragedy of an Irish princess, tells the story of her short, dramatic life in the 6th century in a series of eight impressive paintings, panels from an altarpiece created in 1505 in Belgium where she was martyred. Here to tell us more is Dr Lizzie Marks, Curator of Dutch and Flemish Art at the National Gallery of Ireland. And as usual, we will be tweeting a few images as we go here at RTE Arena in, uh, is, is the address there if you, if you want to follow. Now, of course, I'm going to bring up Monaghan practically immediately in my discussion here. T. Davnet, T. Davnet, um, the home of Davnet or Dimpna is, is a village in, in County Monaghan and indeed the local uh, psychiatric hospital in Monaghan town is St. Davnet's Hospital. So we can claim St. Dimpna, I think, up that neck of the woods. That's right. And thank you so much for having me on the programme, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's believed that perhaps Dav- uh, St. Dimpna or Davnet was mm. believed to have come from Tadavnet. Um, this actually was a connection that was made in the 17th century by uh, Franciscan monks who had come from Ireland to um, to Belgium and they had seen where St. Dimpna's relics were and they had believed that perhaps uh, Davnet, St. Davnet mm. in uh, Monaghan had actually been that very woman, uh, the Princess Dimpna, who had been uh, martyred back in Belgium. Well, just give us the story of how she, why she went to Belgium and how the martyrdom happened there. What's that aspect of her, of her tale? That's right. It, it really says it in the title of the exhibition, St. Dimpna, The Tragedy of an Irish Princess. It's a tragic story. It's about a princess who was born in Ireland in the 6th mm. or 7th century, St. Dimpna. And she was born to a Irish father who was the king and a Christian mother. And because her father was a pagan, um, he had some very curious views about the way in which he wanted to carry out his ruling. He was really grief-stricken when his wife, Dimpna's mother, passed Mm. away. And he wanted to find someone who was equal in her beauty and in her wit. And the only person that he could really find was his own daughter, Dimpna. Which is why the first image we're going to uh, tweet, um, which is a beautiful image in and of itself at RTE Arena, but is is Dimpna's father proposes to her, which to the 21st century year is a very odd phrase. Indeed. And I think even for for Christians who were looking at this altarpiece in 1505 when it was created, Mm. were also absolutely outraged by by a prospect like this. And you do mention that it is a really beautiful piece. And I think, you know, this is one of the most difficult parts of the story, but it happens to be one of the most beautiful ones. The king is depicted in this really 
gorgeous, ornate brocade robe. And it looks as if it's painted using gold leaf. Mm. But actually, the artist, Hosen van der Weide, is so skilled at painting that it's all done in oil paints. But it gives this luster and sheen that creates the illusion that it's in gold. And is that a particular style of the period here that van der Wiesen was painting? It could well be. I mean, he is the grandson of Rogier or Roger van der Weyden, who maybe listeners have heard of before. Mm. He's a he's a master artist painting in the 15th century. And I think he might have inherited some of that skill. And Rogier van der Weyden is really, really good at painting various textures, including fur and that brocade that you see in that second panel. Now, the panels, you refer to them as altarpieces. How how big are these panels? What size are we talking about? Because I think this is an important aspect of the exhibition, isn't it? That's right. They're, each one is about a metre and a half in height. Um, so, so they're rather large. But we have to imagine that this was an altarpiece that had two rows of four mm. panels. And so it would have actually t- towered about two metres, over two metres um, in the of the congregation of these abbots, of, um, of the canons who were at Tongolo, uh, Tongolo Abbey, which is in um, the Kempen region. Right, we, we, I'm going to tweet a second image now um, at RTE Arena to follow these. These are all images from St. Timothy, the tragedy of an Irish princess. Um, this is the new exhibition at the National Gallery of Ireland. Dr. Lizzie Marks, the curator, uh, is with me this evening. Um, again, we're with van der Weyden here and Dimpna and her companions about to embark. Who are the companions and is this sort of, is this sort of setting out for Belgium at this point? Is this where we are? That's right. What you can see in this painting is on the left side is them in Ireland. But on in the background, you can see them um, about to arrive in Antwerp. So it's this sort of combination of mm. two countries together. And Dimpner is about to set on board a sloop, which is a sort of boat. And she's with Gerabernus, who's her priest and confessor. He's the one who baptizes her in the first scene. And he's a really he's a confidant in this whole uh, story. And she's also setting out with the jester of the court, who's wearing a jaunty yellow hat, which is finished yeah. off with a bell, and also his wife. Uh, 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 very notable is the shades of green in the Irish on the left hand side of the panel, if you like, and then the kind of blue that that cobalt and, and very gentle blue, actually pastel types of blue uh, for for the Dutch or for the Belgian side of the the equation there. Yeah, Again, I love that observation. Actually, it's true. There's uh, a sort of con- contrast there. Yeah, and because uh, the blue is very striking, is it a particular type of blue or? Um, oh, I'm not sure if I could be able to know precisely. Mm. I think my colleagues at the Phoebus Foundation, who have done a great deal of research on the painting and did a lot of conservation treatment, this is from their collection. Yeah. They would be able to know exactly what sorts of colours and, and pigments and that, are being used. What is, what is so striking is you talk about that conser- conservation work that was done. What's so striking is how fresh the painting looks. It looks as if it was painted yesterday. That's it. In, in 500 so years old. Yeah, Unbelievable it, to it think. It is extraordinary. What, where did the sainthood of St. Dipna come from. Um, what 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 did she do that that earned her that? That's right. Well, um, after she escaped from her father, um, her father was eventually able to track her down, and this was when she hid out in uh, the Kempen region. Mm. And it was really the fact that she absolutely refused to do something like marry her own father, which is what gives her so much uh, dignity. What gives her so much power and um, and that she was so brave that when she was martyred in the end um, to, to actually go through an act like that, 
meant that she was designated this sainthood. Yeah, and obviously the martyrdom, No, we know that we're going to deal with death. I'm going to tweet a, a fourth image, or sorry, third image now, isn't it? Um, this is the discovery of the sarcophagi containing the bodies of Dimpness, uh, Dimpner rather, and Gerabernus. Uh, that that was the pal that travelled with her, was it the Gerabernus? That's right, that's her priest and confessor. Right, yeah. So, um, again, we're, we're tweeting that image now. That blue is here again up in the sky and and the angel images that we're seeing here, Lizzie. Um, but maybe you would describe the foreground of the painting to us. Yes. So, yeah, again, I think there's the blue that comes through the scene. And mm. also, you'll definitely notice, and when you see it in person as well, this pink that Dimpner's yes. wearing, her costume comes up time and again, and it, it helps you to actually follow the scene by seeing uh, all of the parts where she crops up in the image. Um, but yes, in this in this image that we're discussing, they discover these white sarcophagi. This is now, we're, we're fast forwarding to the 12th century yeah. or the 13th century. And it was known that uh, angels had buried Dimpner and Garabernus in white sarcophagi and so when these uh, these two sarcophagi were uh, uncovered the townspeople from the Kempen region knew that they had come across these two saints. Yeah, and so the final image that we tweet is the return of the body of Dimpner to Gil in, in Belgium. Uh, obviously the, the people of Gil wanted to reclaim her as their own as I did earlier on for Monaghan. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah and, and what's so wonderful uh, is that there's such a living history because her remains, her relics uh, are still today in Gil. So it, it was, it grew into a pilgrimage site um, and it still is in some respects a site in which you can go visit her mm. remains and also um, you know they were believed to have uh, the potential to perform miracles so um, they could help you with uh, numerous ailments but specifically mental illness she's yeah. believed to really help with that which, which again brings us back full circle to St Davenes the, the psychiatric uh, uh, hospital in Monaghan itself exactly. um, I suppose it's important to say yes we've shown the images up on, on Twitter to see, but it's the size, it's the scale of the work here that's important to see in, in reality Lizzie isn't it? Of course nothing compares to seeing these works of art in mm. person and they are luminous when you see them. It is extraordinary. I'm so thrilled to be able to see them yeah. myself after studying them for a while now. It's it's really mm. special. Well, listen, thanks for coming in and, and telling us all about them. And the, the, that's uh, Lizzie Marks there telling us about St. Dipna, the tragedy of an Irish princess. The exhibition is at the National Gallery of Ireland. It will be there until the 20th of May and you can get full details on nationalgallery.ie. You're listening to Thursday Night Serena. Dancing in the disco bumper to bumper. Wait a minute. Where's me jumper? Where's me jumper? Where's me jumper? Where's me jumper? <laughs> you cannot listen to that without smiling, without laughing. And as he looked out into the production area, like us in studio here, bouncing up and down to, to think, where's me jumper. I of think course. everyone in the country knows it, don't they? They do indeed. And the voice that you're hearing there is Paul McDermott, who is the producer and director and writer of this new documentary that we're talking about, about the Sultans of Ping. Uh, Sultans of Ping, rather. And first question is, I have for you, Paul, where's your jumper? You're in a shirt tonight. Absolutely. Shirt, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my three where's me jumper jo- jokes done for this evening. Um you know, it, it it's such a fun piece of music. It says so much in just in terms of the irreverence in and around the, the, the music scene. But put that in the context of Cork and when it came out, Where's We Jumper and the Sultans of Ping, if you would, Paul. 
Um, late 80s, early 90s, um, uh, a very different cork to the cork of um, 2023, coming out of um, a, a, a 1980s really bad time for cork, mm. economic Recession, uh, terrible unbelievable. recession. Unbelievable. And then out of that, um, you had so- suddenly a vibrant music scene kind of kind of came along and you had a couple of bands, um, most notably, I suppose, the Sultans of Ping and the Frank and Walters yeah. at, at the vanguard of this scene. And, um, you know, uh, um, Tony Wilson, the, the, like, the Manchester legend, used to always talk about Factory Records and the Hacienda as, as being at the forefront of a rejuvenation of, of Manchester. Mm. And I'd like to think that the likes of the Sultans of Ping and the Frank and Walters and Sir Henry's and what was happening in the dance scene in Sir Henry's was actually very similar, led to ultimately a huge re- rejuvenation of Cork into the yeah. 1990s. And in terms of Where's Me Jumper, how typical is that of what the Sultans of Ping were doing musically? Debut album in Casual Sex and the yeah. Cineplex was recorded in 1992. Yeah, I mean, Where's Me Jumper was their calling card. It was their debut single. It, it um, you know, thanks to the likes of Larry Gogan here um, in RTE, it, it did really well in Ireland. Um, John Peel over in, in the UK was an early champion of the band, the famed BBC DJ. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, didn't play it twice, but the people of Cork probably feel like this, like the people of Derry do uh, about Teenage Kicks. Still. Well, well, you see... John Peel was very perceptive and he said something the very first time he played it. He said, I hope, um, he said, I hope it's not just going to be regarded as another novelty. He said, I think they're much better than that. And I think he was very perceptive there because, of course, for a lot of people in Ireland, the Sultan story begins and ends with Where's Me Jumper? And, and of course, that can quite often be a kind of a burden for a band who has a, a big hit early on. Yeah, how, how do you go beyond that? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the Sultans were first and foremost always um, a live band and um, that was their, you know, that and, was their comfortable habitat, really. And who are we talking about, by the way, when we talk about the Sultans of Well, Pain? you're talking about um, Niall O'Flaherty and, um, and Pat O'Connell, the, um, the um, singer and guitarist, mm. and then Murty McCarthy was their... Um, drummer and and they went through um, various other members. Alan McFeely was ultimately the bass player for a very long time. Um, they released three records so so even though um, for a lot of people their their career begins and ends with this one hit single, they ultimately had three albums. They had a mm. career well into the 1990s um, broke up as these things inevitably do when when crowds begin to dwindle and you kind of wake up with the realisation that you're suddenly hitting, you know, mid to late 20s and maybe that rock and roll dream that you've been clinging to for a couple of years, mm. maybe you have to put it to one side and, and pursue other things, you know. Let's listen to a clip from your documentary sure. because you've made a radio documentary about this and, and this is about, this is Nyla Flaherty here speaking about the song that was their calling card, as you say, Where's Me Jumper? You'd think that I hate the song, I suppose, but I don't actually. You know, I'm pretty proud of it. I really like it. And I love it. I love hearing that it's popped up somewhere and a couple of the others have popped up in places too. I just love that. I uh, wrote those songs a long time ago, particular point in my life when I used to have life experiences worth talking about and singing about. Yeah, it really tickles. I love the fact that that's Nyla Flaherty from the Sultans of Ping radio documentary that Paul McDermott is in speaking to me about this evening. I love the fact that he, he's owning that song 
Absolutely and totally, Paul. Well, he didn't for a long time, you see. The band stopped playing it from about 95, I think. Mm. In fact... The wisdom of, of older age. <laughs> there was a tour in 95 when they when they weren't playing anything from the first album. They weren't playing the first four singles and yet they kept going and, you know, um, they were offered a big tour of the States in mm. in 97. And um, uh, But of course, you know, part of that deal was that they had to play Where's Me Jumper and Niall at that stage was saying, no, I don't want to play it anymore, you know. But he's come back around to it then, has Well, he? of course, when they got back together in um, in 2005, older, wiser, and and suddenly you kind of go, you know what? Yeah, we did write that song. Let's own it. You know, thousands of bands would would be thrilled to have the association yeah. with a hit song. And it, it was that it was that song that got that got them to top of the pops. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And well, it wasn't that song, but it was that song that got them on the road to yeah. top of the pops. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's let's listen to Niall talking about the top of the pops yeah. experience. The, the highlight, if I'm trying to identify a moment, is when we go on the charts. It was just incredibly exciting. I remember hearing it that you are, are you serious? But also kind of the ridiculous optimism of it. We just thought we were there forever, that everything was going to be solid gold (laughs) from here on in. By the way, the top of the pops moment was, uh, you know, not as fondly remembered by us. We thought the whole video was going to be on. We were told that. So we had eggs on our faces. Well, I remember coming out of the BBC uh, uh, after doing an interview when the song had gone in the chart and just some woman tapped me on the shoulder and just saying, I'm really glad you guys have done it. And that was very nice, a nice feeling. You guys, you know, because we'd done it off our own back. That's Niall O'Flaherty there from the Sultans of Ping radio documentary that Paul McDermott is in speaking to me about. What was the song that that brought them there, Paul? It was the fourth single. It was called You Talk Too Much and it was 30 years ago. It was was, um, was um, mid-January in, um, in 1993 and, and, and Sean it led to this extraordinary episode of Top of the Pops when the Frank and Walters and the Sultans of Ping were on the same episode so, But that is an extraordinary thing isn't it? Well as we try and explain in the documentary you know people talk about oh two bands from Cork on the same episode of Top of the Pops but it wasn't it was two bands from the same pub <laughs> it was even smaller that than that small, yeah. you know, So it wasn't Cork it was one pub and one nightclub yeah, Sir Henry's. It was it was the Liberty Bar, and it was Sir Henry's, and and it's extraordinary, you know. In terms of and if you think of the Frank Walters in that as well, what what did the Sultans of Ping? You know, is there a legacy that has lived on beyond those two bands, and that is still part of of the Cork music oh, scene? Absolutely, yeah. You know, um, uh, both of those bands are absolutely huge mm. still. Around yeah. the country, but particularly in Cork. I mean, the the Sultans are playing two concerts the week after next in Cork. They're playing two nights in the Cork Opera House. I mean, that's just extraordinary stuff, you know. And what they've done, what they've always done, and what I love them for is there's like um, four young Cork bands supporting them, you know. The Sultans wouldn't have that any other way. When they toured all over, like the UK, they used to bring young bands with them. And I always loved that about them, you know. I just want to finish with a very short clip and this is Niall talking about what it feels like to be on the way down. When you go on the Irish circuit then again and if you're downgraded there, you know, hotel managers asking you, what the hell do you want towels for? You're not, you're not swimming. Yeah, I, you know, I think we smelt the coffee reasonably quickly. 
Listen, it's a horrible feeling <laughs> on the way down. That's it. Niall O'Flaherty there from the documentary Sultans of Ping. But they're not on the way down now, you're, from what you're saying. Um, well, they uh, all Paul went off and they got, you know, second careers and they all went back to college and, and um, very successful careers. Niall's a, a, um, a college lecturer over in London in, um, in European, uh, European political thought. Like, you couldn't make it up. Yeah. But um, they only play a gig maybe once or twice a year and they, they... Not to be missed. They don't... They don't owe an explanation to anybody. Well, listen, the, the documentary uh, tells their, their story in a fascinating way. That's Paul McDermott coming in. To, thanks for coming in the Saving Paul. Dancing at the Disco, uh, the, which is the title of the um, documentary about the Sultans of Ping, will be aired on February the 6th at 6pm on RTE2XM. It'll be repeated again on February the 11th at 3pm. And that is our lot for this Thursday evening here on Arena. Amandine Paso-Divine was the researcher. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast. Podcast coordinator Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. I will talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 and John Creedon will be with you from Cork after the news.